Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning out there in Blog Talk Radio, Lynn, and over there at uh, Blake Radio. I always say, well, they play that smooth, smooth jazz over at Blake Radio. That's where we actually started a little over 13 years ago. So I want to say good morning to everybody, and it's Saturday, January the 13th, and happy early Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and, and I'm so grateful for the work that he and Andrew Young and Ralph Abernathy and Rosa Parks and many nameless people at the grassroots level did so that we can enjoy the lives that we enjoy right now, although there's still a great deal of work to do. Thank them for the work that they did uh, under those harsh, harsh circumstances. So that's Monday. So hopefully you'll get out and do something to support the community in memory and honor of Reverend Martin, Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., uh, whose birthday was January 15th, same as my father's. So happy birthday to my dad as well, and they both have crossed over. But I want to welcome you again to Off the Shelf. And I want to start with a a thought before we launch into the show. And we have an amazing guest on deck for you. If you guys hear me coughing, I'm still struggling with some type of a, a bug or a cold, but I'm, I'm coming through it. So, um... Um, I'm going to try not to cough, but the thought for today that I want to start the show with before we introduce you to our, I mean, this is really, really, uh, I think you're going to enjoy today's show and our, our guest who's on deck. is something different. We're taking a little different because uh, we're going to be focusing on science fiction, something we don't do a lot here at Off the Shelf, but that's a popular genre, so we're we're excited to introduce you to the guests in just a few minutes. The thought for today is from Stephen Covey, and it's, I am not a product of my circumstances. I am a product of my decisions. <coughs> That's just a thought I want to leave with you guys as we go forward through the show. And as you go through the week, there's something to think about as different circumstances and situations come up in your life. I am not a product of my circumstances. I am a product of my decisions. And, again, it's a quote from Stephen uh, I also want to ask you before we kick off and introduce you to our special guest today, how good of a mystery sleuth are you? This is a little bit uh, different from sci-fi, but do you like mystery? And no matter what the genre is, you're going to deal with relationships. So if you value relationships, particularly between there's a very complicated relationship between a father and a son and love pull over me but there's also a romantic relationship that's actually meant to be and uh, a relationship with Raymond and four friends he meets in college and they are life lifelong friends you don't see that happen a lot but there are men who stay friends with guys throughout their whole lives and they keep up with each other when they had their kids and their grandkids, and they support each other, and they're there for each other through the thick and thin the whole way through. This is this type of crew in love pour over me. But there's also a murder mystery in there. So if you value mystery and relationships, I think you will love love pour over me. It might help you to heal, especially if you had a, a, a challenging relationship with one or more of your parents, and you can get Love Pour Over Me in print or an ebook format. If you don't see it on the shelves, just ask the clerk. 
tell them you want to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me by Denise Turney, and they can get a copy for you because it's carried by the largest book distributors in the world. So I hope you go get a copy of Love Pour Over Me today. And now let us go and meet our very special off-the-shelf guest. And our special off-the-shelf guest this morning, I am very excited about. I always research for every interview. It takes me a while to research so I can give you guys the best show that I can. And our special guest this morning, who I enjoy researching for his, his feature interview, is Tyrone Givens. Now, Tyrone, he's a writer who he has a strong appreciation for history, and he aims to educate youth and adults through his work. He's the author of the Ben, and I hope he corrects me if I say it wrong, he is the author of the Bennu Project, and we'll learn more about that later during this morning's show. And you can visit, visit him. You can visit him, the science fiction writer, online at https tyronegivens.com, and that's T-Y-R-O-N-E-G-I-V-E-N-S.com. And that's H-T-T-P with the S. And, again, it's T-Y-R-O-N-E. G-I-V-E-N-S dot com. I encourage you to go over to his website, even as you listen to this morning's uh, off-the-shelf interview, because you can learn more about him and see pictures and different things, uh, different events he's attended, even as you enjoy today's show. And we're so excited to have Tyrone here with us on Off the Shelf this morning. Welcome to Off the Shelf, Tyrone. Thank you. Thank you. That was a really nice introduction, and I really appreciate that. I'm glad to be here, and I I also wanted to tell you that I'm getting over a cold, too, and you should try some ginger root tea to kind of help with that cough. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that, sharing sharing that advice with me. Thanks a lot. Uh, I want to tell you the first four, probably the first four questions I ask every guest on the show because I like to give our listeners a little backstory on our guests before I launch into the questions about their particular book, or the project that they're working on. So before we go into the questions this morning, Tyrone, can you tell off-the-shelf listeners where you grew up and what life was like for you growing up? Uh, sure. I am an, I'm actually an Army brat, so I spent a lot of time overseas growing up, and that's different you know, cultural context cues and different situations that you would be put in overseas, especially you know when you can compare and contrast the way that young black people are treated in our home country here in America. So that that even right there kind of led to my sort of different perspective and outlook that kind of fed into the book. Specifically, oh, so, so where's... Go I was, was going to say specifically Fulda, Germany, some parts of France, army bases. Okay, so you were you. How long were you? Was your father in the in the military? Uh, he was finally discharged medically when I was about twelve. So we had two pretty long stints of base living over in Germany. And I heard it's gorgeous over there. You know, Germany, of course. You know what the, the history of the of the country, uh, especially the Holocaust, it has a very, you know, it gets, a lot of times you think negative of it, but 
I heard it's a beautiful country, uh, Germany. My brother actually was in the Army and Special Forces, and he, he was over there, and he, he enjoyed it. So you were, you did you spend any time in the United States? Where are you from in the United States, or were you born overseas as well? Oh, no, I was born in PG County, Maryland. But about oh, okay. a year later is when we first, you know, first PCS to Germany. So it, it's a small, it's actually a small military world is the joke, because no matter who you talk to, they have a brother or a son or a sister or somebody who was in the military. So when I heard you say that, it doesn't surprise me. But I spent uh, the first three years in Fulda, the second three years okay. in Karlsruhe, which is southern Germany. Uh, that must have really shaped. Uh, so when you came back to the United States, you were about 12. Did you did you feel different? I'm thinking about Kobe Bryant now when he was over in Italy. But did you feel, although his father wasn't in the military, but did you feel different? from other people in the United States your age <clears throat> when you came back? It, a little at first, but I had been, you know, visiting back and forth on and off throughout the years, so I, it wasn't totally an alien experience, but it, it was definitely a bit of a culture shock. The way that, the way that black people are kind of treated all over the world is, is one thing, but it's a specific kind of, you know, I don't know, animosity or aggression in America. It's, it's far above and beyond anything I've seen anywhere else. And especially really? in Germany. Yeah, oh, yeah. A lot, of, uh, a lot of black veterans will tell you, you know, when you go to Germany, there's a lot of history there with a lot of those people from that Second World War are still alive. <laughs> and their kids who were born soon after who have the firsthand story so they will tell you in a heartbeat they don't really look at black soldiers the same way that they look at other allied soldiers because we kind of sort of refrain from a lot of that destruction that happened in Berlin at the end of the war and that's not really something they speak about person that's kind of remembered as you go throughout Germany encountering different people very interesting, and I've heard that Europe is kinder, they say, to black people than the United States, um, which is strange. And the United States, you know, promotes itself as just the opposite, like the most welcoming country of all. Uh, America's entire infrastructure is built off of the enslavement and the fruits of that enslavement of black people. So you kind of can't run away from that no matter how much time passes. Mm-hmm. That's true. What did you dream of becoming when you were a kid, when you were a little boy? What did you dream of, of growing up to be? I thought I was going to grow up to be a fighter pilot, actually. Ah. Being able to fly an airplane has been a long-time dream. Okay. Did you ever learn how to uh, – did you abandon <laughs> it, or did you ever – Actually, no, well, and... I got – I ended up getting hurt. So, you know, once you kind of get hurt, any sort of little injury will set you back in the entry process. So I wasn't able to pursue my dream of being a fighter pilot, but I do have a lot of free time. I tend to bounce around between different hobbies. And last year, I obtained my private pilot's license. So that's the next best thing. Congratulations. Congratulations! That's, a, that's an accomplishment. You, the, the kid in you, letting it have, have what it wanted. A lot of people totally <laughs> that question on the show totally abandoned 
whatever it is they wanted to do when they were a child. So so good for you. Now, how old were you, uh, Tyrone, when you realized that you wanted to be a writer? Uh, about 2014. <laughs> it's a very oh. recent development. <laughs> okay. But I, I don't really – this never comes out the right way, but I try anyway. So I tend – I have a bit of a natural talent for writing, and I've always mm-hmm. taken it for granted. So I, I didn't even know that I had the ability to write the way I currently do until about 2014 when something really specific happened and I had a need for that skill. I then started developing it. But, yeah, I, I would be in college and you'd write a term paper in the parking garage before class and, and pull a B on it with little effort and didn't realize that that was a, that was a skill that other people necessarily, not necessarily have. So what what was what was the event that happened though that made you realize you needed to lean on your writing? Well, I'm also a homeschool parent, and finding okay. finding resources and actually finding source material to begin with with uh, a lot of historical relevance for African history specifically was was hard enough was was hard as it is. There's just not a lot of sources out there, so. There I was trying to put together something for a history lesson, and what I ended up doing since I couldn't find what I was looking for was pulling together everything that I had learned myself and turned that into a lesson plan. And then from there it became the Bendu Project. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) So it sort of happened rather organically. Very interesting. You were homeschooling, trying to come up with something to teach <laughs> your child, and then that led into the venue project. But why? Let me ask you this: Why that specific topic? Is your passion for history that strong? Why did you choose science fiction in that angle? Well, and that's that's actually a funny story too. So along that same logic, I I love history myself. And another one of my passions is gaming. But it's it's not the games itself. It's the story that comes along with them. And I'll play almost any game as long as it has a really good story for me to enjoy. So I noticed if you look around, a lot of our kids are not really represented the way that we wish they were. So they're latching on to other things and turning them black. So if you've been paying attention to social media lately, you're seeing black Hogwarts attributed to everything that we do. Have you noticed that hashtag trending? Mm, no. I might not be Okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. I only got mine for the books. Before that, I didn't even know how to okay. do social media. <laughs> but so what they're doing is, and it's hilarious. I'm not taking anything away from the hashtag, but what they're doing is they're taking uh, J.K. Rowling's books, the Harry Potter series, and a lot of the funny scenes that went on during that series they're taking them now and putting a kind of a, a black spin on it and making it hilarious, basically, putting black people in situations that the white characters were in. And I look at something like that and I say, somewhere along the path we've kind of failed our kids when they don't have their own organic stories to pull from. Ah, uh, yeah. So you're having to take from other popular Eurocentric mediums and turn them black. 
And I just, you know, when I was a kid, I wish I had more black material to read from, but that wasn't available for me, so I'm trying to make sure it's available for the next generation. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think that's a good thing. And I've seen some comic books come come out. Um, we know the Black Panther coming out, but then some comic books coming out as well that have uh, black superheroes. And it's, it's black people creating these. Cause we can't keep waiting for somebody else to do it. So uh, it might not go as big, or it's, or it could, but it can over time. Develop, a lot of enough people have awareness of it, so that there's something that we created that that's about us and that um, mirrors our lives more authentically than somebody assuming they know, but they're inaccurate. So I want to ask you before we start talking about the the, the actual book, but how did you get? the Ben New Project included in the Schoenberg Center for Research and Black Culture blog. <laughs> that, that Schoenberg, you know, when I would go to the Harlem Book Fair, it's it's not too far away. That is quite the location, I mean, for to get something included in there. I'm thinking, like, back in Ohio, there's an African-American uh, museum there. In Philadelphia, they have one. They don't just accept anything. And then, like the Schoenberg Center for Research, that's quite an accomplishment. So, first, congratulations. But how did you get it? You said you just started writing in 2014. How did you get it included in the catalog? Well, and <laughs> it's this. I've said this a few times that that's a funny story, but this one is really going to take the cake on exactly how they ended up in there. So, I have a sequel to the Benu Project, and that one's also included in Schoenberg. And the funny thing about it is, was at the time of their inclusion, I didn't even know what Schomburg really was. And I've never been there. Wow. I've, I've been meaning to get up there, but I had no concept of how prestigious Schomburg was until <laughs> a few of my friends with PhD oh, yes, started trolling is. me about it. <laughs> yeah. But I, I get asked that quite a lot, especially from my uh, more established uh, black friends, because they're essentially asking me, who do you know? You don't have a doctorate. You're not in an Ivy League school. How did you pull this off? So it, it caused me to go do my own research and then come around to the realization that, yes, Schomburg is actually quite the achievement. So yes. what happened was <laughs> I was totally ignorant to that fact and did not even – I didn't even apply for inclusion. They called me. Wow. So it, it's not as if I did anything special or beyond my means. I was totally oblivious to the whole thing. I got an email from their senior librarian talking about it, and I didn't even read it right away until about a week later. I thought it was just more spam. Wow. Oh, my goodness. That is – that. yeah, they are uh, They are a big, big, big deal. And so you, you, you told them they could go ahead and include your book. How did they find out about your book, though? Let me ask you that. How did they come across it? Did they tell well, you? the lady saw the lady saw a post I made on Facebook, and there are links in my Facebook post that kind of, you know, uh, I didn't have the website that you saw at this time, but Goodreads before it got absorbed by Amazon would let you post excerpts from your book, so anybody could go to their website and read the first two or three chapters. So from my Facebook post, she followed that link, read both of the previews on. Goodreads, and then track me down and email me. 
I didn't even have a Library of Congress number at that time. Wow. Okay, we got to get into this story. There must be a story for her to see you on Facebook. Something about it must have must have made her reach out and then to include you. But congratulations again. Now, how close Thank are you? Thank you so started much. As a homeschool, it started as a homeschool project. How closely do you stay to actual how closely do you stay to actual historical events throughout the book series? Oh, yeah, that's that's a that's a great question. I love answering that one. So most of the names, dates and locations used in the book are linked to some historically relevant event. So there are some characters that are straight modeled after real-life heroes and heroines. There's bases and ships that are named after iconic figures, mythological creatures, you name it. Then, okay, I have to ask you this, man. You love history. You're not somebody in his 60s or 70s or 80s. <laughs> You're not an older <laughs> person. So how how did you... I've never even heard of like this the time period you're talking about and anything similar to this and i i'm I'm an avid book reader, not to say I've covered all the topics, but I've done a lot of reading on Africa and di- different things certainly the continent is so huge you can't take forever to to cover it all. I mean one lifetime just couldn't do it ten couldn't do it but how did you what something attracted you to this history? that you would know about it uh, at this early stage in your life? Did you just stumble across what you cover in the Benue Project yourself? How did you even come across this subject matter yourself? Hmm. I'm going to give two answers to that question. So the easier answer leads back to why I chose science fiction. So if if you look at some of these big name titles that, are kind of like a uh, Halo or Mass Effect, Call of Duty. A lot of these young kids are playing these games without even realizing that they're learning whole made-up imaginary languages to participate in the game because they have little uh, cookies and Easter eggs that you can find. You have to participate in the little mini-games in the game. So I'm sitting back looking at this like if you can play Halo and learn all about this made-up history of these ancient figures and all this stuff, you can put the same amount of energy into learning something that's actually historically accurate if I present it in the same exact way to you. So that would be why we went with science fiction and why why I sort of masked it like that, made a metaphor out of it. Okay, to attract the, the, the interest of... Mm-hmm. Right, the, and the that, interest is already there. It just doesn't have a black presentation on it yet. Okay. And so how I came right. across all the knowledge was the second answer. And so that, whatever else is going on with the people that pre, you know participated in the creation of the documentary, I'm not here you know, to speak on that, but my first taste of knowing that there was something more for me to learn was when I came across Hidden Colors. So I, I saw that documentary, and there was a lot of factual evidence in there that challenged me to fact-check it. 
And then from there, it just kind of took off. I started reading books. I started going to seminars. I started going to lectures. I started getting involved on campus with the you know African American book clubs and all of that. And so once so I got to, can you tell us about? No, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Can Can you tell us about them? You said the hidden colors. Can you that That's the book that launched your interest for the off the shelf listeners who it might be the first time they've heard of it. Can you just give us a little brief, just a little brief intro to that before we go and talk more about the venue project? Oh, uh, Hidden Colors is a documentary. It's the first in a series. I think there are four in total. And then the most recent documentary put out by that producer is called 1804, The History of Haiti, or something to that effect. But uh, in in the first Hidden Color documentary, they talk about little-known facts that we all should have been taught about but weren't because February is packed with the same old discussions about water hoses, dogs, picket lines, and nonviolent approaches. So we don't learn about deacons for defense who were armed pastors who defended their neighborhoods and actual clan groups who were afraid to go into them and lynch people. We don't learn about, you know, the the benefits of the triangle trade and how it actually built this economy. We're not learning about anything that kind of goes against the slave narrative. And that kind of forced me to find out more about what I wasn't being taught. Like the Statue of Liberty (laughs) is a statue that was dedicated to the slaves, and the Americans actually disfigured it to change it from what it was supposed to be. Yeah. This is the thing. We we are learning more. Our histories and different things that happen that – when people started to speak out against it, I'm thinking about that Tuskegee experiment, it was a hushed, almost, you know, no, that's not what's happening. People are, they, they're getting too, um, people are just being extreme and they're thinking and this type of thing. Then you later find out, oh, my God, it did happen. It did happen. Oh, yeah. You know, so worse worse the, than the, that the, happened. The, oh, somebody's whoever controls the story. They're the ones who, what else are you going to believe? If you speak out and say something otherwise that's true, they'll just silence you and say she's just a crazy person. Just a crazy person. Oh, yeah. Uh, if if I was to come out and say, you know, a lot of this gynecological equipment was tested on black women, slaves, before they put it, you know, mass-produced it for use, and some of that stuff was torturous that they prototyped, I'd be called crazy, but then you go look at medical apartheid, and yes, it's actually a fact. Yeah. Mm. Why did you decide to take the story as far back as 3500, the the BCE? Why did you go so far back with the story? So one of the most powerful books that I recommend to everyone is The Destruction of Black Civilization written by Dr. Chancellor Williams. He goes back as far as 3500 B.C. because that's about as far back as we can trace the oral history and corroborate it with archaeological finds and whatnot. Beyond that, we kind of, we have really good ideas and we kind of know what happened, 
but there's very little proof to substantiate it. So I kind of drew the line at 3,500 B.C. Okay. Okay. And you're giving some good titles for people to go back and read. If you've been really indoctrinated in the mainstream culture, the first thought will probably be, oh, that's not true, or it's extremism. But it, you know, it doesn't hurt to read. What? Why? Why do we decide to believe one voice and not the other? Can you give us a, a brief overview of the Benu Project? And for our listeners who might want to learn more about it, it's B E N N U B E N N U, the Benu Project. Can you give us a brief overview of the Benu Project, Tyrone? Uh, absolutely. It is. I always tell people it's a science fiction metaphor written to educate and teach black people about a wide range of topics that we were not exposed to in high school. These, these are all things that we should have been taught to during that month where they tend to focus on the things that kind of glorify our weaknesses. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, like I, I know a big conversation is about to be had in a lot of households over the next month and a half about struggles with civil rights, but that's literally just one small part of the picture. Right. And have have you ever tried to have a conversation with someone who was steadfast in their beliefs, even when they were wrong, and you knew it? Oh, yeah, no, they don't, don't not, even go down that road. <laughs> Just, just, right, no, people are not really receptive to things that <laughs> challenge their comfort zones. There's a word for it, I no, think, so cognitive not. dissonance. Yeah, so I figured can, if I pack it into up. a book. <laughs> right. And maybe that they won't feel threatened to read the book, um, particularly however you present, you're presenting it, uh, then the threat goes down. Or maybe it's just their curiosity is raised, and then you can deliver some information without them feeling attacked, and they come away with something, even if they even if they reject most of it, they at least have some idea that they might not have had or a thought that they may not have had before they picked up the book. So that's what inspired you, other than the homeschooling, to to actually share the book. Because if you were just homeschooling, you could just use it in your homeschooling, but you shared it with the public with a larger audience. So was that your inspiration for taking it to a broader audience? Well, not not necessarily. I ended up sharing the lesson plan with some other black homeschool teachers. And that was when I realized I probably could reorganize this into a book and help more people receive the information in a non-threatening, totally optional way that they can take home into their own comfort zones. And then the best thing about that is people always come back. They want sources, resources, or resource material. They want ways to verify and challenge the information. And that's the best part because if I start giving you the source material, then you don't have to believe me. <laughs> you can go research it for yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why did you – let me ask you this. Are there a lot of African-American parents or grandparents who homeschool – uh, that is, I, I've not heard a lot of it. I do know that you can homeschool all states, uh, acknowledge it, but do, do, have you found that there's a large audience that does homeschool? Because it's in school that are, are, other than the home, home number one, then school where so much of our 
programming takes place, our early programming that sticks for the rest of our life. Um, but do you find that a, is there a large number of African American parents who do homeschool? It's not that many of us that I that I can see, uh, and I don't personally know more than four or five in my area that I network with. But I think more and more people are trying to find an alternative to these public schools for various reasons, whether it be mandatory vaccines or bullying or racism or whatever. A lot of people are trying to find the time to fit into their schedule and work and their home life to homeschool their kids to kind of shield them from a lot of this nonsense that's being taught in schools these days. But I I can't say that there's a strong one. Maybe I'm just in the wrong area for it. But I I do want to touch on something you just said about the conditioning of young children. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm big on the psychology of kids. I learned late in life. I mean, we all know that kids are little sponges. They're little do-what-they-see brain sponges. And until they hit about five, they're literally following you around, reading everything over your shoulder and doing everything they see you do. But I learned way later in life that that wasn't just a – a, a, a cool phrase or an escape that people use. Our children are actually being conditioned to have low self-esteem at a very young age. And even though the the child's primary teacher is, you know, their mother, they're still learning negative influences from other sources. So if you – are you familiar with the Dateline NBC doll test that they did some years ago? Oh, yes, yes, yep. You mm-hmm. You see where I'm going with this? Yeah, if you are yeah. telling a young black child that they're ugly and you're not maybe even not doing it directly, but you're always showing them in the media or in the coloring books or in their Happy Meal toys that black is always bad or negative and other colors are always better and brighter and good, they're going to grow up to develop a complex called self-hate, low self-value. And if you don't have a high self-esteem, you have low self-respect for yourself you start doing things that disrespect yourself, disrespect other people, because you, you can't respect yourself, you can't respect your peers. So all of these things are kind of caused by a snowball effect. Problems are in our community are caused by the primary problem, which is low self-esteem. Yeah, and you know what? You think, like, uh, in the 60s and the 70s, we we did the black is beautiful and black power, and there was a lot of voices out there really trying to change that and turn that, but it, it, you, you can still see where it's so pervasive. Now, when I was a kid, you didn't see black people on TV. It was extremely rare, and even more at the library, you hardly ever saw a book with a, a black kid on the front cover or no black dolls it was almost non-existent now is 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 normal it's normalized but uh so even that uh, a point tyrone when when i think back to like my father uh his his generation and he was a very courageous man my father had lived his own life he was very intelligent courageous the way he lived his life um but he grew up at a time when you just didn't you didn't see like today what we see um now it it wasn't it wasn't out here t v shows you didn't see black folks you didn't see us on commercials uh toys weren't they weren't black you didn't you didn't see it 
But black people, to me, uh, which would be interesting, I remember from my grandfather passed, I had this conversation with him. It was even worse in his generation. But he said the black family was stronger. The um, the black man was president at home, whether they were married or divorced. He was president in his kids' lives. It, we see more uh, images of us, but it, I, I don't know if it's, is it actually better? Well, it, imagery is everything. Imagery, especially in young developing minds, that's nine-tenths of what you believe. So if you if you take a look at the representation we have, which is why Black Panther is so important, aside from this movie, almost everything else you see with black cast is always, you know, a family drama movie, a Medea movie, or something that shows us in a negative light. And what that is doing is reinforcing to young children to grow up and find out that those stereotypical portrayals and caricatures are what's socially acceptable to be. And everything else is an outlier. So society is going to come down hard on you if you're doing anything other than portraying a criminal or a thug or a dealer or something. You know, we're not really glorifying to our children that it's okay to try to be successful in other ways, furthering your education, being a doctor, being a lawyer, stuff like that. We got enough people trying to break into the <laughs> music industry or whatever it is that everybody's trying to follow now, this, these new trends. What we don't have is enough people building an infrastructure. We don't have enough mechanics, doctors, lawyers, therapists, nurses, whatever else. Uh, interesting. Interesting. Interesting point. So you, we do see more images now than we saw years ago but they're very stereotypical images. So here we are, and and it seems like it's we're. I, I see your point. The, the imagery is 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 very stereotypical. So you, everybody's growing up wanting to be a celebrity or a rapper or not everybody, not everybody, not everybody, but a lot of young people they think that's the way out. That's that's success. That is success. But a lot of it also, before we move away, and I want to talk more about your book, a lot of this starts in the home. I know in the greater society, because I know how my dad taught us, and I, uh, I saw this movie years ago, The Grave Digger's Daughters. He raised his daughters a certain kind of way. It's, it's A lot of this is taught in the home. Uh, you know if, the, if, if mainstream society is going to teach and put this certain imagery out there, you've got to counter it. So that starts in the home. And if the home's not doing it, that's really where the problem is because mainstream society not going to change. So it has to start, exactly. it has to start in the home. Um, this is no so different than when I was in the sixth grade and we had to have permission slips for sex education or the D.A.R.E. program. If, if you're not having these conversations with your kids at home and you're not teaching them what's acceptable, they're going to learn whatever lesson they're going to learn outside the home. It'll be from their peers. It'll be from their teacher. If we don't counter the conditioning, mm-hmm. they, they're just going to learn what we don't teach them. Right. Now, the characters in your book, you said they are based on real historic <coughs> African symbols, whether they're people or a symbol of something that happened. Um, and then just again, I know you said the gaming, this is how you got started into it. I'm not in the gaming. I know my son was in the gaming, but 
where did you learn about these symbols? I don't know why I'm fascinated with this because I was, I'm telling you, I devoured books as a kid. And I'm doing the research for your interview, and I'm thinking, maybe I just never had an interest to go down that path. I don't know. But um, what did you learn about these symbols? These, what did you, I know some of the books you mentioned. Uh, did this start in you when you were a kid? Did you read books when you were a child that you said, oh, that's fascinating? I mean, I read about people like Yomo Kenyatta and some of the other uh, great leaders in Africa. But I never thought to, to, to go down the path that you've gone down. So what, what, did you, what, what did you learn about these symbols and what made them so intriguing to you? Well, I definitely didn't have a strong past or history in it. I was, as a child, I was just as oblivious as the majority of us in terms of wanting to take the uh, extra initiative to learn anything about ourselves beyond slavery in this country. So it wasn't until much later in life that I got into this. And it, it, I think it was in one of the books, Civilization or Barbarism. That's uh, Dr. Sheikh Anthony Diop, if you're not familiar with that one. But he goes to great lengths just on one major plot point to prove that the language that they spoke in ancient Egypt was, in fact, an ancient interior African language. Uh, ironically, as this may sound, <laughs> for a lot of years, European scientists tried to actually say that ancient Egyptians were a lighter-skinned, white-skinned people in that sun mm. 3,000 years ago. And in the movies where they try to portray themselves as such, they are taking on whole tubes of sunscreen to stand out on those sets in a parking lot in America. Well, in reading his book where he's trying to disprove that, he goes into the whole linguistic explanation of it all. And throughout that explanation, he references a lady named Rakheti Amin, and she's been teaching the ancient Egyptian language for decades. I think she actually taught it at Harvard. So that's where I learned all these languages, like all these language-specific symbols and everything from taking classes from her. Ah, yeah, you know, and that's almost silly to think. How do you how do you turn Egyptians? I think because people think it's you had to have a high level of intelligence to create the pyramids. So now, no way could they have been African. It's really exactly. <laughs> <laughs> when everybody knew that they were African. It's a hidden swing because if it wasn't for the pyramids, they'd probably say, okay, yeah, okay, they were African, go ahead. But then when you do something super intelligent, it's like, mm, yeah, it, 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 it's easy to, to read through the lines. Now, does a reader have to have a deep, his, deep history knowledge? You, you're talking about these books that a lot of people – they never heard of or writers. Does a reader have to have a deep history knowledge to understand or appreciate the Benny project? Absolutely not. This is for not even entry level readers. You don't have to have an interest or a strong background in history at all because when you read the book it, it reads like a science fiction novel. It has lights, flashes, laser guns, spaceships, spacesuits the whole nine, to keep the kids interested. So you can read it and enjoy it just for that and never even pay attention to any of the, you know, gems of truth that are hidden inside the book. 
Yeah, but hopefully people will. Now, is the the Med J squad, are they for or against the people? Uh, for. They were. Hey, have you ever seen a movie about Spartans in Greece? Yes. They're actually based off of myths about the Medjay. Medjay are the Spartan okay. version of Egypt, but they predated them by a few thousand years. Okay. So they're for the people. Now, who is Sovereign Roja? What is she like? Who introduces to her and what is she like? Well, all throughout Egyptian history, all the actually the builders of the country and all the pharaohs of it were all black people. There's a million different ways to fact check that and prove it, but they were a black people. It wasn't until later years that they were, you know, assimilated and made multicultural and all that stuff. But that was way toward the end of their power. So of those royal leaders, a real life person named Pharaoh Taharka was the last one. He was the last real black pharaoh who ultimately lost Egypt permanently to the Assyrians, modern-day Western Asians. So I, okay. I made that's kind of a major spoiler because she's she's modeled after the real-life character Tarka. So that kind of lets you know ah. her destiny in the book right there. Ah, okay. So you have there there are women empowered here, and then. Uh, and, male, and female characters and also male characters. I don't want to give the story away, um, but can you tell us what, not not so much the time period, we know it's going back thousands of years, but what does it, does it start out with uh, like a, a, a major conflict taking place or does the story start out sort of, what the, the community at the time a normal scene, and then something happens. How does it? How do you introduce like the, in the very first book? How is the story? Not so much. I don't want you to give it away, but maybe how does it open? Is it open with a major conflict, or does that build over time? Uh, it it starts out in a major conflict. It centers around the subjugation of the Moroan people how they're trying to break out of that and how their enemies are trying to maintain the system that they benefit from as is. So uh, a real life time frame and location for this would be maybe like uh Sudan, Central African Republic area. And the time frame okay. would be just before the sixties when a lot of African colonies started gaining their independence. So the entire atmosphere, the entire uh, environment of the book will be basically pre-revolution. Okay. 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 Now, our books in the series, and talking about the book makes it very intriguing. Our books in the series, are these standalone books? Because this is a his, historical, so I don't know if you're going linear, so... It would seem that, but you can, you can. That's why I'm asking this question. Are they standalone books? So let's say somebody came along, they heard about the Ben U project, and they started with the second or the third book, which I know you are not finished with all of them. Are these going to be standalone books, or do readers need to read all the books in the series to fully understand the story? Well, I, I, sometimes I wish I did have a linear mindset. <laughs> 
But the Bendu project was a great success. And so one of the one of the pitfalls of it though was that people wanted to have more of a backstory and explanation for the Roja character. So I ended up writing a second book as a book specifically for her. And people still wanted more. So ultimately the, the Bennu project is the first book. The Roja fans got their book, but I made it a prequel. So you, you should read the Bennu project first, and then there'll be two more books behind that one, and then read the second book after the Bennu project, and there'll be two more books to complete a trilogy for that one. Ah, uh, okay. <laughs> Why do you think Tyrone? I mean, science fiction, and what the your angle is very different. I've not heard of your angle. We've interviewed people on off the shelf who've, of course, written historical novels, and when they when they are really they go back authentically to history, they t- tend to do very well. You wouldn't think people would like to go back so far with historical novels, but they do. Whether it's a romance novel, but it goes back to the 1700s or whatever, if the history is well researched and authentic, people have a strong appreciation for that. But you've also gotten this science fiction angle where you learn to draw the youth in through the gaming thing that you mentioned earlier in the interview. Why do you think more writers don't dive into science fiction? And before you answer that, I want to ask this question. It, do you think science fiction is a harder genre to write? I don't I don't think it's a harder genre to write. I think it's a harder genre to be supported in, if that makes sense. And that's because it just my belief, personally, I think we've been told our whole lives that we don't fit into a narrative outside of uh, dancing, singing, and athleticism. So a lot of the media you see about us are going to be uh, comedies, basically, or, or or you know football movies, stuff like that. That's where they're trying to keep us packaged into that small narrative. So, and that's mm-hmm. the answer to your other question is why I think a lot of writers are not delving into science fiction for black kids because we've all been programmed that there's not a basically not a market to support it. Like black people aren't going to read 400-page science fiction novels about their own history. So a lot of people don't take that chance. Then they drop Black Panther, and it breaks a record in the first day. Mm. Well, I, I hope, Tyrone, your name is heard. And I'm like, I interviewed that guy on Off the Shelf. Now, I have to ask you this. How is it the young guy... Um, that the Benu Project focuses on. Why do they, before I, I just want to talk to you later about more general writing questions, but in this, how does he let these foreigners come in and take over the, his country? And it puts me in mind of Native Americans in the United States. Native Americans have been almost so put, I mean, uh, so put uh, underfoot, it, you hardly ever even see a Native American. You see cities named after Native Americans. People are so say so proudly that Native Americans used to be in this area. They're so proud when they say it. 
They'll tell you about Native American artifacts and uh, Native American history and the creativity and religious beliefs, but you don't see any. It's almost, I mean, if any race almost got wiped out in this country. And so then when I think of the Bindu Project, I think of Native Americans in the United States. How did the people in the Bindu Project let these foreigners come in and just have so much authority? Well, that's a long answer. But for the book purposes, if you look at what happened to the identity, the cultural identity of Native Americans in this country, no, 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 on this continent, because there were no countries before British colonialism got here, which did a lot to destroy a lot of cultures and civilizations. Uh, what happened to the Native Americans currently happened to the Palestinians, almost happened to the, to the Zulus, the South Africans today. But it did happen to the Tasmanians. And I know you hear that and say, what, that dude from Looney Tunes? Yes, the Tasmanian devil is a caricature of actual Africans from Tasmania who were all wiped out because of colonial expansionism. And that character is, is a joke. It's meant to be in your face for you to see that. Wow. But the reason that it happens is if, if you look at the planet and see who's on it for the sheer numbers, some way, somehow, if you have any pigmentation in your skin, person of color, you are the overwhelming majority on the planet. Right. So if you want yeah. to come in and subjugate large populations of large areas of land, you don't have the manpower to be everywhere at once oppressing people. So you, you know, show favoritism to a certain group and get them to install your system and maintain it for you. That's all Colonial was. They went around planting the flag, set up these client states, and showed favoritism, propped up puppet governments, and on they went. So it wasn't that, you know, people like the main character were born into that system. There's people born into apartheid, non-apartheid right now. It doesn't exist in name, but it does exist in practice. And you ask, how are these young people in South Africa allowing this to happen? Starting to get it together and tear some stuff up and try to get that system completely dismantled. We'll see how that goes. Wow. So you've had success working with um, African-American teachers. How did you appeal to African-American teachers when it comes to the venue project? Well, that Schomburg name drop goes a long way. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is. It is a huge success with uh, inner city teachers, but mainly homeschoolers. I've had so many young, vibrant black homeschool parents in my inbox, in my email, asking me for source material, asking me follow-up questions, wanting to know what's the status of the third book. And also, I'm teaching myself programming so I can make a, an MMO, a, a multiplayer video game, which is mm. not anywhere near completed yet, so I don't even hardly mention it yet. <laughs> wow. But the Are parents you an only it. child, or did you, did you, you got other siblings? Or... Uh, I'm the oldest. I have one younger brother and one younger sister. Are they like you? Are they... Are they creative? <laughs> Are they into history? Are they similar? Is this like, is, were your parents into history a lot? Or 
Well, you, uh, you, no, they they weren't. I'm the I'm the rebellious one. Let's just put it like that. <laughs> My brother oh, got okay. basketball skills I'll never have. But writing is is mainly my thing. Okay, okay. How much research you you did a lot of reading prior to doing the venue project? As we come down to the last four minutes, but how, did you literally have to just were you speaking to people, historians who really knew the history? Were you attending seminars? Were you did you just literally almost absorb yourself in research before you started writing the book? Well, the, uh, I'll take this quick second to list about four major sources of reference material for the books. I did a lot of research out of these four books. Uh, I already mentioned Destruction of Black Civilization, Dr. Chancellor Williams. We had uh, The ISIS Papers by Dr. Francis Cress Welsing. We have They Came Before Columbus from Dr. Ivan Van Sertima. And again, Dr. Sheikh Anthony Diop's Civilization or Barbarism. And there's a few more, you know, Black Genesis and others. Um, the Book of Coming Forth by Day, Malala Karenga. Mm. There's a lot of research that went into this. So I'm, I'm telling people, you know, hit me on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram at The Venue Project. I'm always free to give people links to sources so they can verify everything I'm saying and what I've written in the book, you know, for themselves. People usually tend to appreciate that. Okay. Who who where can our off the shelf listeners get copies of your books? Uh they are available on Amazon for people who prefer that, but I always try to send people to webuyblack.com. I do a take a lot of discounts on there because I'm trying to help them in their mission to rebuild Black Wall Street online in, okay. in the virtual setting. You can get a lot of stuff on there, everything from toilet paper to fabric to whatever you're looking for. What's the name of it again? Uh, WeBuyBlack.com. WeBuyBlack.com. I've heard of it. Or they can just go right to my website and buy either of those three work. WeBuyBlack.com or Tyrone Givens' website or Amazon.com, but preferably Tyrone or WeBuyBlack.com. Now, do you have any upcoming speaking engagements that you can let our off-the-shelf listeners know about? Uh. I will definitely have to get with Valerie Coleman at Pen of the Writer. That's my. She's a. She's a. She's a. You were a good one. She's good. Oh yeah, I know. <laughs> she stays on she top of good. me. She is good. She's a good one. Now, can you tell us where people can find you on uh, social media? What social media sites are you on, and where they can find you? Uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It's at the Benu Project. B E N N U. And I'm currently working on a podcast interview with United Black America. Okay. Okay. Oh, my goodness. I'm happy uh, for you. So we, we have been honored to have with us this morning Tyrone Givens. He's a, he's, a, he's a writer. He has a strong appreciation for history, and he is the author of The Venue Project. This is a book series. It's science fiction, but it it has history in it that goes back thousands of years. You can visit him online at https tyronegibbons.com, T-Y-R-O-N-E-G-I-V-E-N-S.com. Again, that's T-Y-R-O-N-E-G-I-V-E-N-S.com. Oh, my goodness. 
the venue project. You guys, you're going to have to go out and get that. You're going to have to go webuyblack.com, tyronegivens.com, or, or it's also at Amazon, uh, uh, but preferably the support that Tyrone Givens, webuyblack.com first. Then, then you could do the Amazon. But either way, supporting him and the venue project, uh, this this work of science fiction that's entertaining, the Schoenberg Center picked it up. They reached out to him, and that is saying a lot. So we want to support him and his work. And thank Tyrone for being here with us today. I want to thank all of you, our listeners, for tuning in to Off the Shelf Radio. Please come back next Saturday at 11 a.m. Just set your calendar, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time or New York City time to catch Off the Shelf Radio where we'll bring you another more phenomenal writers and publishers and editors, literary agents, anybody who loves books in the literary field we have on here on Off the Shelf Radio. See you back here next Saturday. Remember, you are awesome. You are incredible. You are amazing. Go out and create a fabulous day for yourself. Tyrone, thank you, and I'll shoot you an email. Bye for now. Thank you. Thank you.